BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right. Yes, indeed. Uh, the House sends a subpoena to former White House counsel Don McGahn, putting him on the witness stand, wanting to put him on the witness stand, as well as special counsel Robert Mueller. Hey, what do you say, everybody? On a Tuesday, April 23rd, here we are. It is the Bill Press Show. So good to see you today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for being part of the program as we come to you live from Washington, D.C., of course, our nation's capital. With all the news of the day, we've got lots and lots to talk about, and that's why it's good to have you with us. Whether you're joining us online, on the radio, or on television, uh, we will take you through the news of the day and look forward to getting your comments. Uh, Lots going on. Yesterday, again, the uh, House of Representatives, Congressman Jerry Nadler, chair of the the House Judiciary Committee, sent a request out in the form of a subpoena to former White House counsel Don McGahn, who is mentioned, he is sort of the centerpiece, main, pardon me, the main character in the Robert Mueller special report. Uh, He is mentioned 157 times uh, in the report, which uh, I've told you I've been uh, going through page by page in my own little copy of the Mueller report. Uh, not little copy, it's a big copy of the Mueller report. Uh, and meanwhile, while the House is going after Don McGahn, Donald Trump is suing the House of Representatives, suing Elijah Cummings, the head of the House Oversight Committee, because he said he claims that the House has no authority to look at Donald Trump's financial records. That, you know, that's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. That's a big test of separation of powers. At any rate, there's just a, just a little sample of the things we've got to talk about today. Lots and lots going on. We want to hear from you. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Your comments on Twitter, always welcome, at BP Show. And we will dive right into the uh, big stories of the day after just taking a look at a couple of the uh, other little stories of the day. Um, you know, I saw this. I remember... Um, 
not in every part of town and not in every city. But you know this practice, you've seen it before, I'm sure, as well as I have, where the meter maids come along and they've got a little stick with a piece of chalk on the end of the stick. This is where there are no meters and you're only allowed to park, let's say, a couple of hours or one hour, whatever the, whatever the rules are in that, on that street. And the meter maid will come along and with a little bit of, put a mark, chalk mark on the tire. And then they come back and if the car hasn't moved, then they'll write a ticket. No longer. Uh-uh. A federal uh, a district, U.S. district court yesterday, federal court yesterday ruled that marking tires with chalk is actually unconstitutional. Uh, and it is a violation, they say, of the Fourth Amendment's uh, protection against unreasonable search and seizures. So um, no more meter maids with pieces of chalk. Of course, you know, where they have these either machines that you have to pay at or a meter that takes that, that replaces the chalk anyhow. But you won't see that in any American cities anymore. And many cities depend on that, of course, as a source of revenue. Uh, we've told you before about New York State uh, following California in banning plastic bags, with a few, few exceptions, um, New York has sort of doubled down yesterday. Uh, the governor signed legislation, which will now, if you don't use a plastic bag, you're going to have to pay a nickel for every paper bag. What New York State is trying to do, as well as some other jurisdictions around the country, is reduce the overall amount of waste and refuse uh, and I think it's a great move. Uh, pay a nickel. You have to pay a nickel for a plastic bag here in Washington, D.C. Now you have to pay a nickel in New York for a paper bag. And, of course, what they, want, what they want people to do is to have their own bags, canvas bags or whatever, like we do, and take those to the store with you and fill them up. And rather than just getting multi- more and more and more bags um, uh, uh, manufactured or put in the garbage. Anyhow, lots coming up here. Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. The Supreme Court taking a look at who is counted and who is not counted in the census. That big case coming up in front of the Supreme Court today. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Here we are. It is the Bill Press Show on a Tuesday, April 23rd. Great to see you today. Thanks for joining us. We're coming to you live coast to coast from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. With the news of the day, we are joining you uh, online. We're joining on the radio, joining you on television. On television, of course, on Free Speech TV, the nation's only 24-7 full-time progressive television channel, uh, coast to coast, and we're coming to you on the radio statewide in Indiana and all over Chicago the great city of Chicago and the surrounding communities of Chicago on the one and only WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, and online all across the country and around the globe on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. You're the most important part of the program. We love having you there, and we want to know that you're there by hearing from you and your comments on the news of the day on Twitter. Uh, at BP Show. Great lineup of guests today. Brian Lamb, the man who founded C-SPAN, 
Uh, we'll be here uh, talking about C-SPAN's 40th anniversary and a new book that the uh, head of C-SPAN and uh, some of his people have put together about the American historians ranking the best and the worst of America's presidents. White House correspondent for The Guardian, Sabrina Siddiqui, our good friend, also CNN contributor, who will be here as a friend of Bill for our second hour together. Uh, and uh, Sabrina and I will be, and all of you, will be joined by Pema Levy, also from Mother Jones Magazine. So great lineup of guests today. Uh, again, you are the most important guest, because so we want to hear from you on Twitter, at BP Show. Yes, we haven't heard the end of the Mueller report for sure. Uh, unlikely to lead to impeachment hearings. That was a um, the subject of discussion yesterday uh, among House Democrats. Speaker Nancy Pelosi again saying, hold your horses, guys. We've got to continue uh, to pursue Donald Trump. We've got to continue to investigate um, the allegations of wrongdoing, uh, get some of the people that were mentioned in the Mueller report in to testify uh, but rushing into impeachment hearings, she has cautioned, is not the way to go for the reasons we discussed yesterday, um, which I agree with, that it would consume all the energy of the Democrats between now and uh, Election Day 2020. It would give Republicans and Donald Trump the opportunity to disclaim they're being vic- the, play the victim card, if you will. And most importantly, uh, the House might probably would be able to impeach the president after a year of hearings. But um, the Senate, there's no way these cowardly Republicans in the Senate would vote to convict him. That's the real. And I think Democrats ought to make that clear. You know, you're you're sorry. (coughs) Pardon me. Tell the American people, tell Democrats, you're disappointed that we're not proceeding with impeachment. Don't blame us. Blame the cowardly Republicans in the Senate. They're the ones who are blocking this. They're the ones who are standing in the way. They're the ones who are standing up for Donald Trump, always have, and will continue to do so. Uh, And so thinking that they're going to reverse and convict Donald Trump, which means the ultimate goal of impeachment is to get him out of the White House, not just to impeach him, uh, then um, knowing that that's not going to happen, it's hardly worth spending time on it. At any rate, so impeachment unlikely to result as a, uh, from the Mueller report, especially since the Mueller report did not convict, convince, convict or charge the president with a crime. But uh, there will be multiple hearings on all of the issues that Robert Mueller touched on. And that became more clear yesterday when, uh, again, House Chairman, Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler issued a subpoena to get Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, to testify, a very, very, very key player in all of this. He is the central character in the Mueller report. He is mentioned 157 times. And we know that uh, in terms of obstruction of justice, nobody proves it more than the story of Don McGahn, that Donald Trump called him at home twice and gave him orders to fire special counsel Robert Mueller, Don McGahn refused to do so, uh, offered his resignation, refused, also refused to tell the New York Times that Donald Trump had asked him to fire uh, Robert Mueller because he said, that's just simply not true. You asked me, I refused. I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell the world you didn't do it. Uh, Don, uh, Don McGahn coming across as a real hero out of the Mueller report 
Um, and now he, we will hear his story eventually uh, in front of Congress. I believe he will testify freely and not have to be not uh, not have to be subpoenaed. But they sent the subpoena uh, just in case. Meanwhile, uh, with these investigations starting up, uh, not everybody's going to not everybody is cooperating. Number one, Donald Trump is not. He actually sued Congressman Elijah Cummings, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, yesterday because Congressman Cummings had um, written a request uh, to Donald to the accounting firm uh, that handles Donald Trump's finances and his tax returns, asking his financial returns for the last six or ten years. Uh, and Donald Trump so has sued the House of Representatives, sued Elijah Cummings, say you have no right to investigate my financial records, which sets up a real clash. I mean, think about it. This is a classic case of separation of powers that I think will go all of the way to the Supreme Court. First of all, it's a so much of a, such a Trumpian, classic Trumpian move, if you will. I mean, this is a man who has filed more lawsuits, I think, than there are days in the in the year. Um, we remember, I think he had some 400 lawsuits pending when he be when he was elected president. He sues anybody who disagrees with him. Sued most of the people that ever worked for him because uh, they were. Uh, they were saying he never paid them, and then he would counter by suing them. He threatened to sue every one of the women who charged him with sexual harassment. He ended up suing none of them. But in this case, again, it's another, I think, frivolous lawsuit um, that he has filed. But again, you have to ask, what's, can, what is it about Donald Trump's financial records? What is it about his tax returns that he will not release them? You know there's got to be some juicy stuff there. Michael Cohen. His personal attorney told us that whenever Donald Trump was looking for a loan, he would exaggerate how much money he was worth and how much money his properties were worth. And whenever Donald Trump was going to pay his taxes, he would reduce (laughs) and exaggerate to the other extent how little he was worth or how little his properties were worth in order to to get away with paying zero or very little in taxes. So uh, we know that he played... Uh, games, uh, all kinds of funny money games uh, from his personal attorney. And now the House, rightfully so, wants to take a look at that to see if there's any illegality there. Uh, And um, Donald Trump is trying to block them. Uh, So I think eventually the Supreme Court is going to have to decide whether the legislative branch has the right to investigate the executive branch. Damn right they do. That's part of the separation of powers it's part of the job of the legislative branch. Uh, Donald Trump is trying to isolate the executive branch from any uh, oversight from the legislative branch. Um, I don't think it'll work. We'll see how that happens. On the Trump front, um, Herman Cain yesterday, the embattled Herman Cain finally recognized reality even before, first of all, even 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 Senate Republicans said, "Come on, this guy does not is not qualified to be uh, part of the Federal Reserve." And Republican senators were saying they would not vote for him. Clearly, even Mitch McConnell could not round up enough votes for Herman Cain. So uh, the president had said, "I'm going to nominate Herman Cain," even before he actually did so. Uh, reportedly, Herman Cain yesterday asked the president 
not to put his name up for a nomination, and the president agreed to do so. Which still leaves, however, Donald Trump's second person, uh, Stephen Moore uh, from the Heritage Foundation. You see him often on CNN, uh, used to before uh, his name started, was floated for Federal Reserve. Um, Stephen Moore has got some uh, real problems um, uh, for some back taxes that he owes, for some alimony, alimony payments and child support payments that he uh, was way behind on, and most recently for some comments about women in sports uh, that have uh, <clears throat> gotten him in a little bit of hot water. Um, he uh, wrote a couple of uh, columns in back in 2002 about the role of women in sports. Um, he called it, among, thing, among, among other things, he complained that female tennis players, according to him, quote, want equal pay for inferior work. Uh, he also thought it was a travesty that women would wanted to play pickup basketball with men. They should never be allowed to do so. And he summed it up by saying, quote, here's the, cha- here's the rule change I propose. No more women refs, no women announcers, no women beer vendors, no women anything. There is, of course, an exception to this rule. Women are permitted to participate if and only if they look like Bonnie Bernstein. The fact that Bonnie knows nothing about basketball is entirely irrelevant. So disgusting, sexist, uh, Stephen Moore. He still hasn't been nominated either. They say they're still vetting him. Uh, My prediction is um, Stephen Moore is going to end up like Herman Cain and not get all the way to the uh, uh, to the Federal Reserve, nor should he. Big day, big day today at the Supreme Court. By the way, the Supreme Court will be ruling on the important question about, very important question. Who We've talked about this a little bit before. Who gets counted in the census? The next census, you know, the, the, the Constitution says that there shall be, what it's a, an interesting, archaic phrase. Yeah, the Constitution calls for an, Here's the phrase, actual enumeration of the population of each state every 10 years. Actual enumeration. That means you count everybody is there. I don't think there's any other way to, to, to read that. Um, but Donald Trump now is saying, no, we want to only count the people who are, well, or we want to have two counts, one for the people who are citizens and one for people who are not citizens. Not what the Constitution says. They want to add this question to the census. Um, Many, many states have filed a lawsuit to block that because they point out the reason that we take this census every 10 years, the number one reason, two, one, to find out how many people are living in the United States, how many people are living in the United States, key phrase. Secondly, because most federal dollars allocation of most federal dollars is based on population. How many education dollars go to a particular city, state, or county? Transportation dollars, welfare dollars, health care dollars, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, all based on population, not on how many citizens or how many non-citizens. What the Trump campaign, what the Trump administration wants to do is 
is to tag on this for the first time this citizenship question. Why? Because they want to roust out people who may have come here illegally years ago. Uh, members of the fa- their families who might might have come here. Uh, the rest is, the rest could be American citizens, but that one mother, father, grandmother, grandfather might not be an American citizen yet, uh, and they want to rouse those people out so they can uh, deport them. It's all part of Donald Trump's hardline immigration policies. doesn't belong in the census. He wants to get those names and turn them over to ICE so they can round them up and deport them. That's not what the census is all about. You put that question on, as people have pointed out, then a lot of people are just not going to agree to cooperate, agree to talk to the census takers, and we'll end up with a phony count. Uh, anyhow, that question has worked, it all, it works, it works itself all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on that today. A very, very important case. Uh, keep your eye on that. And by the way, the Supreme Court has to decide this one pretty early because um, they've got to print out the forms and get ready for the census, and we're not that far from 2020. By the way, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, interview last night uh, Associate Justice Stephen Breyer, a man I admire very, very much, was appointed to the court in 1994 by President Bill Clinton. He was confirmed by a vote of 87 to 9. Um, He says he keeps trying to figure out who are those nine people that voted against me, but at any rate... Uh, the confirmation the confirmation process has changed a lot since Stephen Breyer was was nominated and confirmed. Um, but I asked him, among other things, whether uh, he would s- support a move that we hear a lot today, a recommendation by several candidates for president, uh, Democratic candidates for president, of course, that we should expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court, add at least two more, go from nine to eleven to provide a little more balance on the court, or, or even more than that. I asked uh, Justice Breyer about that. His opinion was, he says, I'm not against that. He said, I think nine's a good number. Um, we could go back to seven as far as I'm concerned. He said that number could, could float, which I thought was an interesting uh, comment. And then I asked him about term limits for the Supreme Court. And he really, um, uh, Justice Breyer made a, a little no, uh, news, maybe not noise, but news on that front. Um, and this was carried on C-SPAN, by the way. And again, we're going to be talking to the founder of C-SPAN, Brian Lamb, in our next half hour. Uh, but So on C-SPAN, I asked uh, Justice Breyer last night, uh, so what do you think about, um, if not adding members to the Supreme Court, what about term limits for the Supreme Court? Now, there are now lifetime appointments, of course, which, you know, um, can work for us or against us, depending on who that person is. Uh, But I was surprised that Justice Breyer said he thought term appointments would be a good idea for the court, as long as he said, as they're long enough. He said maybe 18 years he would serve. He said it can't be too little, it can't be too long, But it's got to be long enough. His key point was long enough so that you learn the job, you grow in the job, you have a chance to do the job, but then you're not looking for another job after the court. It's got to be long enough that when you reach that end of your term limit, you're old enough 
you're going to retire and not be looking for another job, for example, in some industry or something that you might have ruled on, which I thought was a very good point. But uh, I was a little surprised at the uh, at his take there. Well, of course, those of you who are not uh, joining me or watching uh, Justice Breyer on C-SPAN last night were probably watching CNN and the town halls, which um, I'm telling you, five hours of town halls. Uh, I, as much as I love politics, uh, I thought it was a little much. I got there late because, of course, I, as I said, I was at our Hill Center here on Capitol Hill interviewing Justice Breyer. Uh, but it started out with Amy Klobuchar at 7 o'clock, moving up to Elizabeth Warren at 8 o'clock, Bernie Sanders at 9, Kamala Harris at 10, and poor Pete Buttigieg got the 11 o'clock, which actually for the West Coast might have been the best hour uh, of all of them. And each of them went an entire hour uh, with an audience of, I guess it looked like the same audience sat there for five hours, an audience of, of students, many of them from um, New Hampshire and, and, and other colleges in the, uh, in, in, the, um, in, the New, in the New England uh, area at any rate. Um, one central theme was impeachment. They kept asking one, trying to nail everybody down on impeachment. Um, Amy Klobuchar taking uh, a sort of, um, well, it's up to the House, but if they do it, we'll, we'll take care, we'll, we'll look at it in the Senate. If the House brings the impeachment proceedings before us, we will deal with them. Okay, not exactly putting herself on the line saying, yes, start impeachment hearings. Uh, and by the way, neither did Bernie Sanders. And again, you can't get more left, more liberal than Bernie Sanders. Uh, and he said, the Mueller report raises some serious charges we got to look into and then see where we go from there. The Mueller report said, basically left the question open, which the Congress has got to explore, as whether or not he obstructed justice, a very serious crime. So, again, Bernie is saying, let's, let's hold these hearings, let's find out more based on the Mueller report, and then decide where we go. Um, sort of that wait and see. It doesn't mean do nothing, doesn't mean not take any action, but do the investigative route first and then consider impeachment. Elizabeth Warren, however... And she was the first one to come out very, very strongly saying, no, 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 got, got to start impeachment hearings. There is no excuse for not doing so. The idea that this would be inconvenient at this time, she says, baloney. There is no political inconvenience exception to the United States Constitution. Um... Right. And she moves on, for example... Uh, if she said, this is Donald Trump, if it were anybody else, huh, we wouldn't hesitate. If any other human being in this country had done what's documented in the Mueller report, they would be arrested and put in jail. Arrested and put in jail. And so she says she doesn't want any senator or any member of Congress to um, be able to basically duck this issue let's let's force everybody to stand up and vote yes or no every person in the senate and the house ought to have to vote yep elizabeth warren so she's way out in front on this issue by the way 
It's, it's, again, she continues to be way out in front, and every every time I say something good about Elizabeth Warren, I say, oh, you're endorsing Elizabeth Warren. No, not. I'm just pointing out. I'm not endorsing anybody uh, so far in the 2020. Um, but Elizabeth Warren is way out in front in terms of new, bold, new ideas, like expanding the Supreme Court, like the wealth tax, like yesterday she came out with a 600 and what is it? $684 billion plan, I believe it is, to um, to $640 billion plan to erase student debt, basically just get rid of student debt uh, and um, and give people a brand new lease on life in terms of the, the debt that they've, that they're, some, some people, you know, into their 40s and 50s are still paying off their student debt. She just wants to wipe it out. At any rate, Elizabeth Warren, way out in front, the first one uh, to call for the impeachment hearings. And yes, last night, she was joined by Kamala Harris. This is interesting because on Friday, when Elizabeth Warren first said we have to start impeachment hearings, Kamala Harris said, uh, I've read the report. Let's hold some investigations, and we'll, then we'll decide down the road. I think over the weekend she decided she didn't want to be uh, playing second fiddle to Elizabeth Warren on this. Uh, she, so she took a different point of view last night. We have very good reason to believe that there is an investigation that has been conducted which has produced evidence that tells us that this president and his administration engaged in obstruction of justice. I believe Congress should take the steps towards impeachment. There it is. And finally, Pete Buttigieg, uh, the last uh, town hall attendee of the night, if you will, um, he he says uh, Donald Trump deserves to be impeached, but notice he doesn't say start impeachment hearings. I think he's made it pretty clear that he deserves impeachment. I'll leave it to the... And he leaves it right there. Uh, on the 2020 front, a couple of interesting polls yesterday, again, I thought related to the uh, town halls at uh, that CNN held last night uh, with college students. Um, there were two polls that came out yesterday um, among looking at support for the Democratic candidates among college students. Very interesting. First one from, pardon me, the Kennedy School at Harvard, looking at um, young Americans 18 to 29. Number one. Bernie Sanders, 31%. Uh, number two, Joe Biden, 20%. Interesting that the two oldest guys running get the highest votes among the youngest people who are polled. Bernie, 31, Joe Biden, 20, and Beto O'Rourke, 10. Um, a, a equally interesting response and a similar response um, a group called College Reaction, and that's what they do. They just gauge support for issues around the country on, among college students, particularly college students, even younger than the 18 to 29 range. College Reaction, it was reported yesterday in uh, Axios. Uh, they talked to um, over a, a little over 1,000, about 1,100 college students. Uh, number one in that poll, for 20, to, uh, looking at 2020, Joe Biden. 18.9%. Bernie Sanders coming in second at 15.1%. And you'll never guess who is third. Donald Trump at 14.7%, even among college students. So long way to go before 2020, but it is already very, very interesting. 
Uh, and we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the great C-SPAN and the man who started it all, a legend in his own time. Brian Lamb joins us in studio. Quick break. We'll be right back. Network live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. No, it's the youngest member of the Young Turks Network. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Tuesday, April 23rd? Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. Brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, those good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox. They keep our federal agencies running day in and day out, proud to get up and work for America every day. Um, we salute them, thank them for the support of the program, uh, and direct you to their website at afge.org. You know, we have a lot of important guests in our studio, uh, but never more important than today, the founder of the great C-SPAN 40 years ago, Brian Lamb, legend in his own time indeed. Hello, Brian. It's good to see you. How are you? How, how do you feel about being older than the oldest person to ever run for president? <laughs> Who is uh, Bernie Sa Sanders? Bernie Sanders, and you're older than he is. Yeah, I, you know what? Just, want, just proves that he's not too old to be president it, of the United States. It doesn't. States. I wanted to wish yes. you a happy birthday. I know this is your birthday month. Uh, it is my birthday month. Thank you. <laughs> it's <laughs> always also, I, it's also my wedding anniversary month. So I always look to your birthday to make sure that you're still about a year older than I am. <laughs> it makes you feel good. And, and as I was just pointing out before the break, the two oldest men who've ever run for president are leading in the polls among college students. Wisdom What does everywhere. that tell you? Huh? Yeah. It tells me that the people younger haven't gotten their act together. Okay. So I... <laughs> Um, I was on C-SPAN last night, thanks to you. I, unfortunately for me, I was watching. Uh, oh, my God. Okay. I, usually I'm asleep by 7. <laughs> but with uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. I know. Um, I was surprised on, uh, on C-SPAN that Justice Breyer agreed that he thought that term limits for members of the Supreme Court are a pretty good idea. Well, after you've been there 25 years, you can yeah. say something like that. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I was more interested in what you tried to drag out of him on television, although I've heard him well, say I, all that. Well, I was going to ask you yeah. about that next, right, yeah. is I ask him uh, about cameras in the courtroom. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, and he gave, I thought, the standard answer that you heard 40 years ago about putting cameras in the house. This group on the Supreme Court today will never get over it. I don't know what it is that happens once they get into that conference room, but they go in there having said on camera in front of the Congress when their nominations are being heard, television would be a good idea. It'd be a great opportunity to educate the public, and then they get around their colleagues, and it comes out a big zero. Yeah, because he said, I mean, among other arguments, right, the people then start to perform for the cameras, right? Isn't that what you heard Yes, what? and and there's no reason why they would have to. I mean, they're grown men and women, and they're smart as they can be, and just stop performing. Yeah. It's pretty simple. But And all those arguments against uh, cameras in the House and cameras in the Senate have just proven to be worthless, right? But even if, they, even if the arguments were accurate, uh, it's still 
the government that's paid for by the people and they ought to be able to watch it. And if over time they can't, you know, rein it in the, you know, grandstanding, then the Congress uh, will be thrown out by somebody. I mean, it's really the, the mentality is that w they blame us now for everything, as you know, everything that goes wrong. It's all television's fault. And I'm not talking about the court. I'm just talking about the public at large. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a shame that uh, it, this is an intelligent country that they can't go on television, deal with the issues without overusing it for their own purposes. So how many people watch C-SPAN? I have no idea. <laughs> I, have no idea. I knew that was going to be your answer, and I also don't believe you for a second. I have no idea. And, I, you know, I've never had to care. That's the difference. You know, when it's all about the money. Our money comes to us from the private industry, and they have never asked us what kind of an audience we have, and they've always supported us for 40 years, and that's the good news. You must have some idea. No. Well, do you do the only, any polling at all about We don't do polling about, well, yes, we do polling. Every four years after the election, we try to find out if, you know, who can spell C-SPAN. Uh, <laughs> and it's not S-E-A-P-A-N, uh, <clears throat> S-P-A-N, excuse me. But, uh, yeah, when we find out that, you know, it, the, the standard answer I give on it, it's about 10 percent of the society cares enough to watch on a regular basis. Uh, 30 percent more will watch it when something of real interest to them. And the 60 percent rarely ever get there. Hmm. Um, you have uh, had many honors in your life. Uh, it was about 10 years ago uh, that you actually were awarded the Medal of Freedom, correct? Correct. From the by President George W. Bush. It was a big moment in the history of uh, C-SPAN and for the American people. Do you remember this? Here you are. Here we go. C-SPAN is not what you call exciting TV. <laughs> Though some of the call-in shows do have their moments. <laughs> that was a big moment there, huh? Yeah. Most fun I had on that day was sitting next to Harper Lee. Really? Yes. She, she got the same medal at the same time. And, and no, it really was exciting. Uh, she was sitting right to my left, and she couldn't hear. She had bad hearing. She's a delightful person. And I leaned over to her when the president was making a presentation to her, and I said, he's talking about you. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then she was in a wheelchair, and she was. it was difficult for her to walk. The military aide was supposed to lift her up and put her in front of the podium, and I had been a social military aide there years and years ago mm -hmm. with Lyndon Johnson, and he didn't do it. So I oh. ended up – I had the <laughs> thrill of coming up in front of the podium. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. That was the best part of the – and the be other best part of the day was inviting my wife to come up on the stage with me. That was a great moment. It was. Yeah, Congratulations was again. So uh, you, the, the president mentions there uh, that uh, the call-in parts of the show, which I always enjoy when I do the, the, the morning show – um, Washington Journal, that um, that they can get very interesting. And also um, the comments that you get from listeners can be very interesting at times and viewers can be very interesting at times. Uh, particularly, I remember when you um, didn't want Michael Savage on the air um, uh, anymore. You got in a little hot water uh, from some of your listeners. Remember this. But uh, I thought I'd just share with you as we go through this uh, half hour, or so some of the emails and what people that uh, listened to Michael Savage had to say to us, Eulario is what it says. 
Did you really turn off the free speech award when Michael Savage was to talk? How dare you? You are a Nazi and a Stalinist and are probably a homosexual, and I don't appreciate your agenda. This is Stu Lewis, and he doesn't say where it's coming from. He says here, C-SPAN sucks, but not as much as you do. That's to me. Have a nice day, kid. I always thought you liars on C-SPAN were a bunch of bed-wedding commies, but now I'm convinced. I will never watch the garbage. It reminds me of the mail that I get, Brian. I just wanted to share that with you. That was that was <laughs> such a, an extraordinary experience. Actually, the back story on that is that it wasn't that uh, Michael Savage couldn't come on C-SPAN. He had gotten a Freedom of Speech Award, Freedom oh. of Speech Award, uh, and oh. had, and was asked to go to Chicago to give a speech, and he refused and sent a DVD. And we said, well, if you, it's not important enough for you to go get the uh, award. It's not important enough for us to put it on. So we, that's why we didn't put it on. And then yeah. he came after us, as, as you can see. Well, I was proud of you because I think he's the most disgusting person on talk radio. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'll get those. Yeah. <laughs> you deserve them. All right. <laughs> so not only are you celebrating the 40th anniversary of uh, C-SPAN, how many channels C-SPAN now? Three. Three. And right. a radio station. And there you go. Uh, the, 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 the empire of Brian Lane. <laughs> but you have a, 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 new, a new book out about presidents of the United States. Uh, the, this is available now, right? Today. To, today? Yeah. All right. Pub day. You know what that feels like. I know. Yes. That's, that's You've correct. done that how many times? Uh, uh, ten. Yeah. I am honored that we see you on publication day. The presidents, noted historians, rank America's best and worst Chief, chief executive. You know what? Uh, the question everybody's got to be asking you, of course, is how the. We'll, we'll, we'll so save that to last about the current president. We don't. Who we are don't, these? We don't rate him. You don't rate him. Who are the president? Who are the who are the historians you talk to? Who are the who do you think are the best presidential historians today? Well, I'd be very careful to say That's that. That's right. Okay. There are forty-four presidential historians in this book because there are forty-four chapters. Whoa! I and see. And they all come from interviews. Whoa! Over the last thirty. So years. each one is a different. Each one is a different historian. And you know the, the, the fabulous regular names of the Robert Carrolls, the Richard Norton Smith, Doug Brinkley, uh, Edna Green Medford, who's at, right here at Howard, has been one of our uh, best guests over the years. She does a chapter in here on uh, Chester A. Arthur. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because when you sit down and read about every single president over the last you know, 200 and some years, there begins to be a thread. You know this more than anybody. You know the thread that comes through the years. Uh, but it's never more clear when you're reading one chapter after another mm. from different historians about what the problems have been over the years, and a lot of them are still with us. Is there a consensus that uh, among these historians that FDR or Abraham Lincoln, the best president, or? This book is built around three surveys that we've done on presidents. And the presidents are listed, their chapters are listed according to where they were listed on the surveys. For instance, number one is Abraham Lincoln, number two is George Washington, number three is FDR, number hmm. four is Theodore Roosevelt, I can go down the list. Yeah. <clears throat> but that's all in there in the background material on how the survey was done is in there also. Is it based on their uh, accomplishments or how they, or there their are, challenges or how they lifted up the American people? What there is are it? 10 categories. We ask 100 historians, hopefully from different sides of the political fence, uh, to judge them based on 10 categories. And uh, um, 
it works because over the years, no matter how many times you do these surveys, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington comes out number one. Hmm. With no matter how many categories you have, under and uh, we were successful in getting some sixty or so historians to to rate these um, presidents. And the survey, it's all online if you want to look it up. There's a fabulous thing on Wikipedia. You can look up every survey that's ever been done, and it's all done in a chart so you can see what's happened on the different surveys, not just ours, over the years. Uh, and if people go to c-span, c-span.org, they can find the, the, the listings for these two? Yes. Yeah. Uh, for, for this book, I mean. Yeah. yeah. And this book. Um, fell out. Thank you. You're trying to steal my <laughs> No, my I just material. fell out. I didn't yeah. want Lose it. Uh, uh, this book sort of is. This book is a thirty-two dollar book. It can be had, going to some of the online sites for twenty bucks, and um, you know it's five hundred and some pages. Who, if um, I, I'll talk to you more about some of these ones at the top. But if Lincoln and Washington and FDR and Teddy Roosevelt are at the top, who are we talking about? Millard Fillmore and. Yes, Chester, and, Arthur, and, and at the all the the ones we always talk about at the bottom, and and sometimes they're at the bottom only because they were there for a short time and they really never were intended to be presidents because you know we didn't treat vice presidents very well back in those early days. The bottom is James Buchanan; <clears throat> he always shows up on the bottom. I don't even know if it's fair, uh, but it's happened for years and years, and primarily because he was the one that led us into the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And then Andrew Johnson doesn't do very well. He was impeached but not convicted, and he's the second from the bottom. And then you have, you know, Franklin Pierce gets a, a rap. He was only there for four years. Historians say that he was a drinker in the White House, but there are other historians that said he didn't take a drop of drink while he was in the White House, but he did have a problem. He did die of cirrhosis of the liver, and he, they, sadly, uh, he was not, it was not a good president. There are five members of Congress running for president today uh, on the Democratic side. Um, by my, I believe, because I, I checked this not so long ago, that only one member of Congress has ever been elected from Congress to the White House. James Garfield. James Garfield. How'd that work out? Sad. He, sad, right? He didn't last that long. He was a good from, person. and From Ohio. And was smart, but uh, was killed. Yeah. You know, assassinated. Like three months or so into his presidency. I think. A little bit it, longer it, than that. Maybe, by, yeah. By Charles Guiteau. Charles Guiteau. His, his he, assassin? His assassin. And Charles Guiteau wanted a job in his administration and kept hounding him, and he didn't get it. He wanted to actually be, I believe it was sent to Paris as you know, a foreign diplomat. And uh, there's one great story. Ken Ackerman tells this in his book, uh, who is a Washingtonian, a lawyer, and did a great book um, on uh, James Garfield, where Guiteau actually sat in Lafayette Park. And in those days— Across from the White House. In those days, Garfield, as president, didn't have any security. He was sitting there one day as he walked across Lafayette Park to go over and visit, I think it was James G. Blaine, uh, but he's sitting there watching him, you know, just hanging outside the White House. And then a few days later, shoots him at the railroad station down where the, the well, uh, he, gallery right. of art is. Yeah. I was um, the the backstory on that is uh, uh, that, that about a year ago, Congressman Tim Ryan 
uh, who's been a frequent guest on the show, called me and wanted to uh, have dinner to chat about maybe running for president. And um, I wanted to make the case that you should run for governor of Ohio rather than run for president because nobody is ever going to make it from Congress to the White House. You got to have a step in between. So I did a little research, and then I found out, no, no, no. In fact, one member did make it from Congress to the White House, and he happened to be from Ohio, like Tim Ryan. So it sort of undercut uh, my— uh, Did he listen to you? No. No, of course. <laughs> Does anybody but ever? Do you but talk, I'll tell you— I just want to say, because you're so, you've always been so interested in, in presidential uh, candidates, do, do you ever talk on the air about your involvement in the early days of, of uh, Mr. Sanders? Uh, I have indeed, and yeah. I write about it in my Book. memoir called yeah. um, "From the Left," uh, and that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not supporting or yeah. anybody y- yet he, in 2020. He, when you had your famous uh, dinner around your dinner table, was that the first time he actually had a meeting with anybody to talk seriously about running the, the last time around? Uh, no, I, maybe with some outsiders. That that that's what I had suggested to him, but he certainly had talked to. Uh, Tad Devine, who had run yeah. his Senate campaigns, uh, because he had asked Tad to come to this dinner meeting at our house with a little outline of what he thought could be done, wh- whether it might be possible. So he talked, I know he at least talked to, I'd say, some of his political people. We would expect if he's elected for you to be the press secretary in the future, by the way. No, no, no. The oldest no. press secretary in history? No, I, <laughs> <clears throat> I told him at that first dinner meeting what I wanted, <laughs> and which remains true to this day if he's reelected this time, not the last time. And? Ambassador to France. Why not? Right down there on the yeah, Champs-Élysées. Right. Exactly. You, yeah. Right. You can take care of the Yellow Jackets while you're over there because said, they would look upon you favorably. There's the guy said, it's the only thing I want. Uh, I want to ask you about a president that I don't think gets enough credit. I just finished, and you've probably already beat me reading it, Robert Caro's book, Working. Mm-hmm. Tremendous book. Mm-hmm. And um, he is now on the is it fourth or fifth book on fifth. Lyndon Johnson. Fifth. Yeah. Um, I mean, Johnson was a giant in terms of what he got done. Why isn't he rated higher? He's rated is pretty it, high. Is it Vietnam? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but he's, but he's actually rated pretty high. If it hadn't have been for Vietnam, uh, I suspect he would be probably up there in the top five, possibly, you know, because of a, I mean, most people look favorably upon what he did for civil rights. Uh, not everybody, though. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still, it's, it's still an issue in this country after all these years. But the one thing that comes across, again, I've read the, all four volumes of, of Cairo and I'm reading Working, is that, I mean, Johnson loved power and amassed a great deal of power, but he used it to do a lot of good, great, and I'd say great things. I mean, just just like where he started from in the hill country of Texas and the picture that Robert Caro paints of how poor those people were, you know, and, and Johnson brought electricity to that whole area. Right? This is a, an odd an fact. Incredible story. An odd fact. You know, Catula, Texas was where he taught. Um, when he was um, a teacher down there, meaning Lyndon Johnson. Do you know who else is from Catula, Texas? Uh, Sam Rayburn? Jeff Bezos. No kidding. <laughs> really? <laughs> Whoa. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Owner of the Washington Post and a thing called Amazon. And the wealthiest person on the planet, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. And there ought to be two statues down there somewhere, don't you think? In Absolutely. Yeah. 
And he came up last night in the CNN town hall. Bernie Sanders pointed out that Jeff Bezos, the worst, wealthiest man on the planet, mm-hmm. Amazon paid zero in federal taxes last I year. I think the audience ought to know, though. I heard you talking about going back and watching the town halls on CNN. How late did you stay up? Uh, and, and what time did you get up this morning? Because they ought to factor that in when they listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> I will say what some of the candidates should have said to some of the questions last night. None of your business. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite? I don't have one. Among the presidents. I don't have one. Uh, no, come on. I mean, not that. I the, don't have I don't one. Republican no. or Democrat. No, it has but, nothing to do with that. I but, just don't have a favorite. I don't have a, you know, over the years, there's no such thing as a favorite interview, really. Uh, there are ones that are more fun than others, ones that are more serious than others, ones that are disasters, as you know. Uh, but I just always have I've never had a favorite. But some that you find particularly colorful? Well, I worked for two years as a Navy social aide. I don't want to give the impression it was a highfalutin naval aide around Lyndon Johnson and um, had not, this has nothing to do with his politics, but standing next to him uh, on three, probably three times a week over those two years was an extraordinary opportunity to watch probably one of the more vigorous presidents in history do his job. I, I, it turned out that I did a lot of the introductions. I would stand next to him, and then oh, you as people say, came through the yeah, line, I yeah. would say, Bill Press. Mm-hmm. So he would could say, oh, Bill, so good to see you again. But in, he did more work in a—, in a uh, receiving line than probably most presidents in history. And you'd just stand there and you could listen. I mean, you know, tell, I, I never will forget one night when he said, I want to go to Texas, get the plane. That was totally unplanned. And before you know, within an hour, the helicopter landed on the South Lawn and he was on his way to Texas, tra- traveling down there on a little plane, a little jet plane that landed on his runway and his ranch at his ranch yeah. where he had it built for forever and ever so somebody could land he could land at his ranch anytime he wanted to you talk about the receiving line i remember caro talks about that johnson had a way that his father did too who was a state legislator in texas of reaching across putting his one arm on his shoulder on your shoulder and the other on your lapel did you see all that? the time? Yeah. The other thing he would do is get so close to you and your to your face that you would back. You can see pictures like this where whoever he was talking to would back way back and lean have to literally lean back because he's up here right on there <laughs> on his face, you know, punching his finger and you know, I want your vote. And it was fascinating to watch. Uh, did you see all the way with Brian Cranston? The portrayal of Linda Johnson. The I play. didn't, but I did see Brian Cranston in Network, which was all such a treat. It was. I yes, saw it too. Yeah. It was great. Right. Uh, how many presidents have you interviewed? I six or seven. You know, some in-depth interviews, some not so in-depth. Uh, interviewing presidents sounds like great fun, but it's probably one of the more difficult things you'll ever do because they are interviewed so often, and if you try to do something new mm. and different. You find yourself searching for answers to questions that may not even be that relevant. Those have not been the, the most fun I've ever had over the years. Right. And I'm sure they're also skilled at avoiding your question if they don't want to answer it. I think most of the time they, they do that. They do you know a pretty good job. I'd, <clears throat> I've never interviewed uh, Donald Trump, and uh, I, I suspect we won't. He, he picks everything fairly carefully, and... Uh, 
he, you know, we, we do the long form interviews, and usually you don't get the the one hours that uh, we'd like to do. So where's uh, let's? Just, I know you haven't. Donald Trump's not included in here. I will uh, resist the temptation to ask you if he'd be the worst ever. Um, that's that would be my vote. Where's President Obama end up? He's twelve. He's twelve, and that was right after he left office, and so there was a lot of. Uh, you know, emotion about him at that point. And right. it'll be interesting to see in the next survey where he lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, there's no way of knowing. Some of these presidents have moved rather far from where they start. Eisenhower is much higher now, up about, I think, number five. I right. And um, uh, Andrew Jackson is sinking uh, rather quickly. Uh, well, congratulations, Brian Lamb. 40 years of C-SPAN. Thank you uh, for all Americans for uh, what you have done for our country that brought us, bring us C-SPAN and uh, this easy access to our Congress and someday to the Supreme Court. Uh, and congratulations on the new book, The Presidents. Check it out at cspan.org. And thank you, Bill Press, for being what you are. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And a center stage for the Supreme Court today in a big hearing, oral arguments on the census and whether the Trump administration can tag along with a add on a citizenship question to the census. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It's Tuesday, April 23rd. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome, welcome to the program. Great to see you today, and thank you for joining us, whether you're joining us online, on television, or on the radio. We're joining you nationwide, around the globe, in fact, online, with all the news of the day uh, and our commentary on what's happening in the news, and then your comments. Welcome on Twitter, at BP Show. Lots going on, as I mentioned, Supreme Court, looking at uh, the census question today, Uh, also the House Judiciary Committee sending out, as predicted, a subpoena to get former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify. Uh, and Herman Cain saying, no, you know, I know I'll never get enough votes, so you might as well drop my name from consideration for the Federal Reserve. We'll take a look at all of that, plus more news of the day with our good friend Sabrina Siddiqui, uh, covers the White House for The Guardian, and a CNN contributor as well. Busy, busy person these days, Sabrina. Not as busy as you, though. Look to see you. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Run fast to catch up with you. Uh, but, um, and look, I wanted to show you. 
The Mueller Report. My own copy. A bound copy of the Mueller Report. Yeah. It's a little bit of light reading. Uh, I know. This, is my, <laughs> this was my Easter weekend, right? Oh, boy. Yeah. You really know how to throw a party. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, thanks to a UPS, the local UPS yeah. store. Was... Somewhere there's a book club, and this is their reading. Oh, my God. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> dull reading, I'll tell you. Pretty dull session of the book club. Um, so we've got lots to uh, lots to get into, lots to talk about. A couple of other Sabrina off the wall stories that I saw this morning. Um, this is usually Peter's job on that full court press, but mm. I was looking for some little things this morning. Um, two, and I'm sorry Peter's not here for this story. There's a study released out of a clinic in Zurich, Switzerland. It's the Hurstlanden Clinic in Zurich, Switzerland. <laughs> That studied, they did a comparison between bearded men and dogs. Okay. And discovered that bearded men actually have more germs than dogs. So Peter has more germs than Weebay. There it is. There it is. (laughs) Exactly. He would have enjoyed that one. To the point that some said that some of these men are actually, you know, they're. It's dangerous to be because around it's them. Probably just stuff that's stuff that's growing there. It beards, just stays there. So I think I'll maybe I'll save that story for when he goes yeah. back, and we can ask him more about that. Right. So right. If you want to hang out, hang out with WeeBay. Yeah. That would be a beard. Or how about this story out of Doral, Florida? A little um, embarrassment there. Uh, the, the the highway crew went through the the road crew for the yeah. town of Doral, Florida. And they were putting in new crosswalks, new crosswalks, including one at the local school. Okay. And they painted the crosswalk, and then they painted so that people slow down. You know, they have the word "school," right? So that's the school crossing. Uh, <coughs> the road crew spelled it S C O H O L. Oh boy! <laughs> right in front of the school, S- <laughs> they've got S C O H O L crossing. That's just sad. That is that sad. That's sad. Yeah. I think as a punishment. I hope they went back and redid it. I, th- I hope as a punishment they made the members of the road crew oh my go God. to school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. A little, little, little bit of a spelling bee maybe. A little spelling bee. And finally, uh, I was pleased to learn as someone who grew up in Delaware, Okay. Uh, surrounded a little town of Del- in Delaware called Delaware City, surrounded by marshland. And one of the th- our favorite um, items on the menu was muskrat. Okay. Uh, I just learned this morning that in Detroit, Michigan, during Lent, Catholics in Detroit were given a special permission. You can't eat meat, but they were allowed to eat muskrat. Muskrat. What is muskrat? It's a rat. <laughs> is it really? That lives in the water. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. It's a rat. Yeah. It doesn't taste very good. I, <laughs> eat a lo- I eat a lot of it. I hope I never eat it again. This is the Bill Press Show. Don McGahn called in front of former White House counsel, called in front of Congress to testify by the House Judiciary Committee. And Donald Trump, meanwhile, suing the House Oversight Committee, saying, hell no, I'm not going to release my financial records or my tax returns. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is a pretty lively day here in Washington, D.C., It's Tuesday, April 23rd. Good to see you today as we join you coast to coast from our studio in Capitol Hill, reaching out to you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the radio, 
on the great WCPT, the big progressive voice of Chicago, and on television, Free Speech TV, uh, America's only full-time progressive uh, cable channel, 24-7. Check it out, Free Speech TV. Good to see you, and so good to welcome back to the studio. She's usually sitting in this chair when she's here, but once in a while we get her to come in as a friend of Bill, Sabrina Siddiqui. White covers the White House for the Guardian, and uh, you're showing up on you see her on C, not C-SPAN. That was <laughs> Brian Lamb, CNN, uh, often as a CNN contributor. Hey, Sabrina, welcome, welcome, welcome back. Thank you, Vag. Boy, CNN was full time last night. Five, five town, town halls, halls in a row. Yeah, how many did you watch? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to fess up. I watched uh, because I had a pro. I, yeah, I, I mentioned earlier. I interviewed uh, Justice Breyer last night at the Great Hill Center here on the Hill, so I got home a little late. But I watched part of the, uh, the second half of the Elizabeth Warren and the first half of Bernie Sanders. Okay, yeah, those so. are some of the good ones. Yeah, I saw so, I saw some highlights. Mm-hmm. I read some top lines. Okay, so That's I good. can I can still espouse to what they said. <laughs> yeah, and uh, then we had one more jumping in yesterday. But overall, what, the most interesting thing maybe was uh, getting everybody's take on impeachment. Right, right, right. Uh, and Amy Klobuchar was saying, well, if the House does it, we'll take a look at it. Bernie Sanders was saying, you know, you ought to have some investigations, and then we'll decide where we go from there. But Elizabeth Warren and then Kamala Harris were both saying, <coughs> full speed ahead. Full speed ahead. Start impeachment hearings now. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I still think that the calculation House Democrats are making is primarily political. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi held a call, a conference call with her caucus yesterday on Monday to discuss a way forward. Remember, the Mueller report came out, I think many people believe intentionally, while Congress was on a two-week recess right before the holiday weekend, Passover and Easter. And, you know, they haven't really had a chance to huddle and to discuss what's in the report. And they're also only operating off of a redacted version of the report. But there is a growing chorus of House Democrats who believe that even what's in this redacted report alone warrants impeachment at a minimum impeachment hearings. Mm -hmm. So the challenge (laughs) is that we know Republicans in the Senate would not vote to convict. They won't vote to remove the president from office. So if Democrats do pursue impeachment, it would very much be uh, more symbolic, uh, but it is exercising the oversight power that they have as Congress and what many people in the American public expect from members of Congress, that they shouldn't not act because of the political risks on what many believe is the appropriate role for them to take because it then normalizes this behavior. And there are countless examples of at least the president trying to obstruct justice. So that's why you see them subpoenaing Don McGahn, who is central to some of those episodes. And at least maybe they can try and subpoena witnesses, documents, and start making the case before the American public. Whether or not they act on it is a separate question. Right. And the speaker, meanwhile, and and others have been making the argument that uh, clearly uh, Donald Trump may have committed impeachable offenses, certainly uh, actions that were inappropriate, dishonest, wrong for whatever reason, but that if they pursue impeachment, number one, as you point out, it's never going to never gonna result in conviction, right. therefore not result in 
getting him out of the White House. Two, it's going to consume every bit of time and energy that Democrats have between now and November 2020. Mm -hmm. Three, politically, it could work against work in Donald Trump's favor by then he's going to say, look, here, I'm a victim again. I was a victim for two years of Robert Mueller. Now I'm a victim of this and play that victim card. Uh, and I guess four, they've got opportunities to hold these hearings and expose all of the wrongdoing right. and then focus on mounting a strong campaign against him in 2020. Those are the practical, if you will, arguments against impeachment. Absolutely. And uh, Speaker Pelosi said in a letter to ahead of the call to her members that there are other ways to hold the president accountable and that those uh, ways solutions can be found outside of immediately moving toward impeachment. I think what she means is starting to at least have some of these figures who are central to the Mueller report come up and testify on Capitol Hill. Obviously, the committee chairman want to also summon Attorney General William Barr forward once again. Now they have the report where they can also use this to counteract or contradict a lot of what he said in his previous hearings and in that press conference where he tried to, you know, essentially absolve the president of wrongdoing. And they want to hear from special counsel Robert Mueller himself. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is a lot of steps that have to come before, you know, they just move to try and uh, impeach. And I also think that they, you know, they have this redacted version of the report. They don't think they want the full report. They've subpoenaed the full report and all the underlying evidence. And so, you know, this is something that if they if they just move on this report alone, the president can use to say, well, the special counsel didn't make a determination and, and they're attacking me. He's called it presidential harassment. It'll help him reanimate his base. Uh, but I will say one thing, though. The other argument that some people say is House Democrats should go ahead. They should at least start the impeachment hearings. Yes, it's going to take up a lot of their time, but you know who's going to be doing the uh, campaigning on policy, the very wide-ranging Democratic field. And so mm-hmm. it's very much possible that House Democrats can you, you spend a lot of their time on this oversight role that a lot of people expected mm-hmm. from them, and it'll be the candidates who will make the policy case to the American people. Right. Well, it's a difference, though, between my response that would be between oversight hearings mm-hmm. and impeachment Impeach- hearings. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Um, so overall, when you had, a, as you've had a chance, and all most of us have just read um, excerpts, um, I must admit, 448 pages. I haven't read every one, but I went, I went through for the parts that I was looking for. Right, Don McGahn's role and Jeff Sessions' role and Corey Lewandowski's. What, what was, what's your take overall on the report? Disappoint, disappointed in the overall report that it wasn't stronger, that he didn't reach any conclusion, or. Well, I certainly think, the expectations for it were very, very high. I think the expectations are very high. Um, no one was expecting an indictment. It was very clear of the president. It was very clear that Mueller was going to follow what is more of a policy of the DOJ <laughs> not to invite, or not even a policy, an understanding that they would not invite a sitting president. Um, illegal experts have said that it would not, that it's not the law. You know that they, that you cannot indict a sitting president. It's more an informal guidance. But I think that we had had enough reporting to suggest that they won't go that far. And but people did perhaps think that Mueller might recommend charges of obstruction of justice for yeah. Congress to then carry forward. That he will still make a determination. And so what was surprising to many people is that he just he completely declined to say in his own words, in the words of special counsel, whether or not the president did in fact obstruct justice, and said that. You know, he he on the one hand 
could not build that case from the standpoint of criminality. But at the same time, he was not exonerating the president and just completely punted on this issue in a time when the climate is so polarized that, of course, Donald Trump's Justice Department is going to try and spin this in his favor. And of course, it's going to fall on completely along completely partisan lines on Capitol Hill. But I think it's still a very damning report. There are at least 10 instances in which the president right. clearly sought to obstruct justice. And the only reason he was unsuccessful is because either staffers in the White House or other members of his administration or his cabinet said no, that they declined to carry out his orders. Otherwise, there are so many examples from the firing of Comey to the repeated efforts to try and convince former Attorney General Jeff Sessions not to recuse himself from the Russian investigation to dispatching Don McGahn uh, for a number of uh, mm -hmm. things that would disrupt the investigation, one of which was to try and get him to fire Robert Mueller, and he threatened to resign, um, to the you know misleading statement about the Trump Tower Moscow meeting. There are a lot of examples, and that doesn't even take into account the campaign's efforts to obfuscate its contacts with the Russians. So there's a lot in there. And, uh, you know, there was a criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Moscow. But again, there was a willingness to collude. There was mm -hmm. a willingness to conspire. They just didn't always get what they wanted. Right. Right. It's certainly I, I mean, I think you have to say just on the on the facts, on the face of it, the report does not exonerate the president of the United States on either charge. Collusion. There was collusion. There may not have been a criminal conspiracy. But right. as you point out, there are many, many hundreds of cases where and he talks about here they were interested in what the russians had you know they were receptive to it that's Rece the word he yeah. used receptive, receptive. Yeah. and they certainly thought that they stood to benefit electorally from what moscow was doing and at no point in time did they think to alert the fbi that right. a foreign government and not just a foreign government but an adversary of the united states is trying to and actively interfere mm -hmm. with the election to help one of the candidates because it was their own candidate and they wanted that help. Right. So to say no collusion is wrong and then to say no obstruction is wrong. There are 10 different cases. You just outlined them where uh, the president may not have succeeded, but he sure as hell tried right, right to to obstruct uh, justice. He said the uh, appointment of the special counsel, and I can't repeat all the words he used you, thank here, you. Yes. but he said it would, he, he did say this is the end, end of, of my, my presidency. And those are not the words of an innocent individual. Right. Um, so in that news conference with with Bill Barr, he part of his spin was trying to say, well, you have to understand that the president was upset <laughs> and he was frustrated, right? <laughs> because, as you point out, he saw this as really questioning the legitimacy, legitimacy. of his of his president, yeah, which is hardly an excuse for. Trying to right. fire the special. I mean, historians have pointed out that Nixon was frustrated. Sure, mm -hmm. I mean, every, I mean, there are plenty of people who commit acts of wrongdoing who are frustrated, who are upset, but that does not excuse engaging in actions that are, at a minimum, unethical, if not criminal. Um, I, I think that that did speak to the lengths that William Barr was willing to go to explain away the president's behavior. And we know that William Barr is someone who, in June of 2018, wrote a, a memo. 19 pages. 19 page memo, essentially dismissing the entire obstruction line of inquiry that the special counsel was pursuing. So we know where he has <clears throat> stood on this question of obstruction, very much deferential to the president. 
And separately, he kept repeating no collusion, no collusion, um, which is you know, the words the president has used and emphasizing those words again to try and exonerate the president as a public opinion when there is, in fact, a lot of uh, material with respect to the Trump campaign's contacts with the Russians and the entire section on the Trump campaign's communications with WikiLeaks, the website that leaked the hacked Democratic Party emails, is redacted, which is extremely telling because another line that struck me as very key from the Barr press conference was when he kept emphasizing the difference between being involved in the hacking versus involved in the disseminating. Mm -hmm. And he tried to draw this clear distinction that it would be criminal to be involved in the hacking, but being involved in the disseminating is... A separate matter and not not criminal behavior, which I think is sort of again laying the groundwork for when we do learn more about just how um, much coordination there was, perhaps between some of the re- emails that were released by WikiLeaks, the hacked emails, and the Trump campaign. Right now, then to top it all off, Rudy Giuliani a couple of days ago. Right. Going from Donald Trump saying there were no contacts at all with the Russians. And then we find out, well, there were contacts, but it was either but nothing. They didn't learn anything or or whatever it is. Now, Rudy's latest line is. What's the big deal? (laughs) What's the big deal? Anybody would do it. Yeah. Anybody, any candidate would accept information from from Russians. And it wasn't illegal. There was nothing wrong wrong with it. And I was talking to some. <laughs> I mean, it's 180 it's, it, from. It's 180. It's not expected from the president's legal team, and especially the likes of Rudy Giuliani, uh, whose entire PR tour has been a spectacle within and of itself throughout this saga. But you know, I was talking to some people who said, "Can you imagine if someone went out there uh, and said, you know, what's the big deal if Democrats, you know?'" got incriminating information about candidate Trump from the Iranians. Just imagine, just think about the foes that, you know, Republicans have lined up. I mean, Russia, in fact, was one that they were so concerned about. But if the North Koreans, if Pyongyang had, you know, provided uh, information damaging to the Trump campaign uh, to Hillary Clinton. I mean, you know, it's just oh, it, oh. It, the, the idea that this is now talk about impeachment go, hearings, go, right? Going to be right. <laughs> they wouldn't even have the hearings. They just go ahead and they yeah, just do right. It. So, so you know, the idea that this is somehow you yeah, know this sure. is par for the course is absurd. But Giuliani is someone who did go from initially saying no collusion, which was what the president said, to over the past few months saying, well, collusion's not a crime. Right. You remember he had shifted mm-hmm. uh, the messaging, and right. so did other surrogates of uh, President Trump. And that was, I think, by design, because they know. I mean, forget the report. We, we knew from the reporting of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and some of which was backed up by these indictments, that there were these contacts between senior officials in the Trump campaign, Paul Manafort. Um, you know, you had the two foreign policy advisors who were more low level, but still George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. And then you had, of course, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner and Manafort being part of that infamous June 2016 Trump Tower Moscow meeting. The uh, Trump Tower Moscow project that didn't come to fruition, but was being negotiated during the course of the campaign by Michael Cohen, who did say it before Congress that not only did he, of course, lie about it, but that the president and his children who are part members mm-hmm. of the campaign knew a lot more about those negotiations than they have let on. So there was a lot. There was a pattern. And again, it goes back to this idea that 
they 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 went into that meeting, for example, at Trump Tower in uh, June of 2016, expecting the dirt on Hillary Clinton. They just didn't get it. And yeah. they thought it was a waste of time because they didn't get what they wanted. Otherwise, right. the question is, what if they had? What if they had walked away from that meeting with more? Do you know they they would have used it? They would have used it. Sure. And there is sure. true that WikiLeaks well, released that uh, the John Podesta emails an hour after the Access Hollywood tape leaked, in which mm-hmm. Trump mm-hmm. was bragging about uh, and gro- that's groping all, and kissing women without that's, their consent. That's all outlined again in, I, the, in the report. The timing and of it. And the timing of it. A lot of it's redacted. But the names are right there: Rick Gates, Paul Manafort, Roger they're Stone. All, Roger Stone. They're all right there. It, 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 you see the names, and then everything else is redacted. Mm. So there's a lot now. Uh, among the people who uh, we talked about, Don McGahn, who uh, is mentioned 157 times in the report, uh, but comes off looking like the 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 you know, the knight, or the white hat, or whatever in the report, right? Um, one who doesn't who doesn't come out looking so good is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, right. um, the press secretary who has admitted. Well, she doesn't admit that she lied, but she's yeah. admit that she uh, did not tell the truth when she said there were countless FBI people who work for the FBI, countless ones who called the White House to thank the president for firing James. Who had lost faith in James Comey? Yeah, right. Lost confidence. So have we lost faith in Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Well, I'm surprised people had faith to begin with. But uh, <laughs> you, you watch those briefings and we all know uh, that most days, uh, well, they don't have briefings most days, but when they or do have she briefings. She set a new record. It's been 43 days right. since the last briefing. It's a new record. The last record before that was 42 days. The one before that was 41 days. Right. So We know she doesn't tell the truth. Um, I'd be interested to see when she does ha- hold her next briefing because – you could bet that there will be a decent number of questions. There should be, otherwise people have failed at their jobs. But they're about her admitting to the special counsel that her statements about the FBI having lost rank and file, having lost confidence in James Comey, were not uh, founded on anything. Those are the words that special counsel used. Slip of the tongue. Slip of the tongue, which doesn't make sense because she repeated that assertion multiple times when pressed by incredulous members of the White House press corps about the claim because there was no evidence to support now, it. And I she mean, also said it on Fox uh, News. It wasn't just this one isolated statement. I was there at the briefing when she said because I remember people were saying, name one. Right. You know, she said countless FBI agents. Right. And she said it. She, yeah, she said it more than once. Um, I think this is just a moment where you have it there on paper, the acknowledgement, even if she didn't say, I made that up in those exact words that she acknowledged and admitted that she was just making a statement uh, out of thin air. Um, and and it's in that words of investigators as well. Now, remember that it's not just lying to the press, it's then lying to the American public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. it, it's I think there's some people who are dismissive of how big of a deal it is, but you're standing up on that podium and speaking to the millions of Americans are watching at home. And and it, she was lying about the president's rationale for firing the FBI director who was overseeing the investigation into the president's campaign and his associates. So it, the, the nature of the lie was a lot more serious uh, than the White House might want to give credence to. Right. So yesterday at the White House, I don't know if you were down there, I wasn't, was the, uh, I always avoid this event, was the Easter egg roll. I mean, hmm. 30,000 kids and their parents and the president and the first lady. 
Uh, Sean Spicer was not the Easter Bunny this year. No. Oh. <laughs> but the Easter Bunny was up on the balcony with the President and the First Lady. Um, and, of course, um, he wishes everybody a happy Easter, but even wishing a happy Easter has to be a political statement. I want to wish everybody a very happy Easter. Our country is doing fantastically well, probably the best it's ever done economically. We're setting records on stock markets. We're setting records with jobs, and unemployment numbers are the lowest they've ever been. MAGA, make America great again. I'm surprised you didn't throw that in as well. The kids um, are like, I just want some chocolate. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but the, the reporters did get a couple of questions in, and someone asked him about, what do you think about people, this is sort of an offshoot of the report, what do you think about people disobeying your orders? Uh, and the president said, nobody disobeys my orders. Nobody said, disobeys me, Nobody yeah. disobeys him, right, yesterday. I mean, again, Don McGahn, right? Well, yeah. First of all, he sounds like he's some kind of king, you know, that no one disobeys me, which is, again, striking in terms of how he views the presidency. But did not follow his orders. Jeff Sessions, uh, Don Jeff, McGahn. Jeff Sessions, it, it, he wanted him to unrecuse himself, right? right. And Jeff Sessions yeah. says First no. he didn't want him to recuse himself, then he wanted him to unrecuse himself. And right. then he fired him eventually because he was frustrated with the right. fact that he recused himself. So you got Don McG- I was just thinking, Don McGahn and Jeff Sessions. James uh, Comey. James Comey, because of Because he did not drop the investigation to right. Michael Flynn. Um, Corey, Corey Lewandowski, which Corey that Lewandowski. one was surprising Sur- to me. <laughs> surprised me too. I thought he was a loyal soldier, but the, uh, Donald Trump told him, go tell Jeff Sessions to limit the investigation to future elections. Yeah, they rushed interference and ignore our campaign. Ignore the even campaign. Even Corey Lewandowski. Corey when Le- even Corey Lewandowski <laughs> says, I'm sorry, sir, this is not a good idea. I mean, that, that tells you everything you need to know. Yeah. Um, uh, and there are plenty can, of people. You who, can go down the list. The I'm intelligence sure. chiefs, because he wanted them <laughs> to go out there and downplay uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election. And, of course, they didn't do that. That was people like DNI chair Dan, Dan Coates. Coates. Um, you know, there were others uh, who have since left, uh, but they, they refused to, to do that, which is interesting because that was another one of those reports that they didn't deny at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it was in the New York Times. But it, it, one thing that this report has done is is vindicated a lot of the reporting around Russia. You know what? Um, Th- that's a very good point. If it, uh, I believe, if it did not, if the report does not exonerate, exonerate Donald Trump, which it does not, it does exonerate the media, I think. I mean, I'm sure there were some story, some cases where people got something wrong, right? Right. But the BuzzFeed the story, part, they've come out with a statement on their, but um, was probably the most damning report that Trump directed Michael Cohen to lie. Um, and that mm-hmm. was probably the most problematic because the special counsel came out to refute it in a very rare statement at the time. But right. they did, you know, they, they've ex- they've explained but, in a in a in an inter- they they've done what you do, which is you you issue what a, a correction, you apologize, and you have a right. memo explaining but overall, what it is that you you did. But like you know how you got to that conclusion. Almost, I'd say ninety nine percent of the reporting turned out to be true. Absolutely. And you think about you, again the ninety nine percent of things that the White House says that aren't true. Right. <laughs> and yeah. you never get. Uh, an apology, never get a clarification. But you've mentioned several times the June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. We know about that because of the New York Times, right? Right, right. We know about that's the, why Donald Trump the Jr. hush money was, payments was because of whatever to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Wall Street uh, Journal. Yeah. You know, the New York Times was essentially the outlet that forced Donald Trump Jr. to make those communications public with that the the ones that essentially arranged the meeting 
uh, where he said, if it's what you say, I love it. You and I sat here and talked about that when he was told about a, an mm-hmm. effort by the Russian campaign uh, government to help elect his father. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's all there. Um, but just back to a moment, uh, back to this idea for a moment about no one disobeys Trump. And, and there are a lot of people who come out looking good in that sense. But it's important to remember that there's plenty else that they have done to uh, appease this president. There are plenty of other ways in which they have very much obeyed him and and yeah. been willing to do so uh, at, at the expense of what is good, what is right. And even Don McGahn, I will say, I mean, he I think that he he threatened to resign over this request that he fire uh, Robert Mueller, he, he'd go and instruct uh, Rod Rosenstein to do so. But he did try to convince Jeff Sessions not to recuse himself. He At some point, mm-hmm. he just reached a dead end, but he did try and follow through on that specific instruction. And at no point did he really say anything about what the president was asking of him behind the scenes in public. He only talked about it when he was contacted by investigators uh, for an interview. Right. Um, and he stayed there until Jeff Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed and then quietly left. So, you know, some yes. of these people would never have actually spoken unless they had been forced to right. cooperate with right. an investigation, in which no. case no one would ever know no. uh, right. about He's the president's efforts to not, justice. Not a, uh, not a classic uh, whistleblower. He was, yeah. Yeah, he was sort of forced to blow the whistle, if you will. Uh, we're going to be joined here. Uh, Sabrina, Sabrina stays with us as a friend of Bill for the entire hour. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, Pema Levy, uh, who covers uh, all things politics for Mother Jones, will be joining us as well. Um, you're here at the table with us, so stay tuned. Quick break, and we'll be right back. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. And on a Tuesday, April 23rd, uh, thanks for joining us here as we wrap up uh, The Bill Press Show with uh, the news of the day from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. With the help of uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, here's a friend of Bill from The Guardian and from CNN. Sabrina? Hello. just, Just... Feels like old home week having you here. Yeah, I'm here. I'm back to my old stomping grounds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, good to see you. And now joined by another good friend from uh, Mother Jones, Pema Levy, uh, and a good friend of Sabrina's as well. Pema, nice to see you. Great to be here. So we've been talking um, on and off about impeachment. Um, and um, last night at the CNN town hall, we saw some, um, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris Right out there saying we've got to start these impeachment hearings. Everybody else was sort of in this middle ground of let's hold some hearings first and see where it goes. Um, our listeners and viewers have been um, very active on this issue. Uh, I have taken the position of Nancy Pelosi, which is there are other ways of getting a Trump through the hearings and through a good, vigorous campaign. An impeachment would get in the way, plus Republicans will never convict. So what's the point? Uh, I think we, not everybody agrees with us. Yeah, here. we have a lot of McKenna. comments coming <laughs> yes. in. Uh, a lot of people disagree with you, Bill. No. Yes, yes. A lot Ooh. of people say that uh, failing to impeach. Let's see, what we got here. We have Porter Devin saying failing to impeach Trump normalizes our current political climate. This is not normal. Hashtag impeach Donald Trump. 
And then we have uh, Smacky Pipe saying hearings, <laughs> hearings, and more hearings televised. Front page. Remember Benyazi and her emails? Question mark. Mm-hmm. We do have a poll up right now. It says, should House Democrats proceed in the impeachment of Donald Trump? And a lot of people are just saying, yes, they should. Right now, it is up. And um, it says, Brian, this J, okay, says, we know that they won't pass this in the Republican Senate, but knowing he was impeached and Barack Obama wasn't will drive him insane and make it all worth it. All right. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, and thanks to uh, McKenna, McKenna Chester, by the way, filling in for Peter this week, huh? doing a great job. Thank so, you, Bill. Thank you. Um, what do you think? Uh, we were talking about this earlier, Pema. What's your take on impeachment? Uh, is it something Democrats should do and will do? Oh, gosh. I don't want to be the, the should, uh, you know, I don't want to make that prescriptive right. call here. But I... I I think it's possible. Um, I think that, you know, we're going to have hearings over the next few weeks. If it's, you know, Don McGahn, I really hope it's Robert Mueller. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I think that they're going to have to stop punting on this decision and finally decide if they're going to do this or not. And they're going to have to justify it either way. And I think there's a a danger here. If you if you do um, impeach, uh, you know, I think they they fear the political backlash, um, you know, sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Um, you know, from things like health care and, and the economy uh, and, and something like what happened to the Republicans in the 90s. Uh, at the same time, if you don't impeach, you run the risk of sending the message that, yeah, this literally wasn't that big a deal and Trump didn't really do anything that bad anyways. Uh, and so I think that, you know, whichever way that they go, um, they need to ultimately make a decision and then they need to be really careful in how they frame it. Uh, and but 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 you, as you just pointed out, and I keep coming back to it, <laughs> the ultimate the ultimate end of that is Donald Trump will still be in the White House. Yes. So what's the point? You know, I think to, I'm, I'm not. I yeah. So I will I will I will play devil's advocate to you, and I will channel um, some of the folks, uh, not to just pretend that Twitter is is the authority here, but how could um, you? <laughs> but I, I will say, you know, some of the um, the folks who are more. Uh, legal scholars um, uh, that I see on, on Twitter um, and and talk to about about this, I think that there is a fear. I think that there is you know the question of politics as you're saying, and then there's sort of a question that they have of if you don't impeach for the things that were unearthed in the Mueller report, you said an you you do a disservice, um, and you set an example that you can. Uh, come, you know, very close to coordinating with a foreign power, you know, solicit help from a foreign adversary and then um, abstract the investigation into that uh, aid and, and, and be okay and, and not even go through the motions of an impeachment hearing um, and that it does a, a disservice to our democracy and to the, uh, the duty that Congress has um, to, to enforce the Constitution and to, you know, maintain the rule of law and checks and balances and, and all of that. And so I think that there's sort of a, a moral um, uh, uh, feeling from, from the people who are, who are pushing this, um, that this is sort of the right thing to do, even if, as you say, at the end of the day, Donald Trump is still in office. Well, that goes back to the idea of normalizing the behavior, right? It, it, it sets the precedent yeah. that this, this type of conduct, and we talked about at least 10 instances where the president sought to obstruct justice, uh, becomes... Okay, uh, you know you can't you can say it's unethical, um, and you can take other actions to condemn the behavior. But ultimately, if you don't actually hold the president 
accountable in a much more concrete way, then you're essentially paving the way for future presidents to engage in the exact same type of behavior to push the boundaries of what they can get away with. And potentially even Donald Trump himself, if he's elected to second term, could also look at this and say, well, I can do whatever I want, because that's effectively what has been said, that the political calculation is what's going to drive how Congress responds, not the oversight role that they've been tasked with as a legislative and investigative body. But then there is that famous war, uh, line, I'm not sure I could quote exactly, from, from Robert Mueller in the report, where he says, in a sense, I did not reach a criminal conclusion because sort of my hands are tied yeah. on the question of obstruction of justice, but Congress can do so. Right. Now, they can't charge the president with a crime. They'd have to recommend, I believe, to the Justice Department that the Justice Department do so, which Bill Barr's not going <laughs> right, to. It's a bit but circular. they can find him guilty of a crime. They just right. can't, they don't have prosecutorial powers. Yeah, well, in the and, and ultimately they have impeachment, which is something that the Justice Department doesn't have. I mean, that's why we keep getting to that point in the conversation, right? Because you know, the Justice Department has the cr- prosecuting a crime role, and Congress ultimately has the role of removing someone if they don't think that they're upholding the law. Right. Um, I, yeah. Uh, so we'll, I, I believe <laughs> that that it's not that they're going to do nothing, right? There are going to be multiple hearings exposing all of this wrongdoing, but I don't think they're going to get into impeachment hearings. We'll see what they do. Um, you, you've, Both of you have been writing about the Mueller report. Sabrina, you had a big article about the unanswered questions left, questions left unanswered by the Mueller report. Um, yeah. The key unanswered questions. The key. Yeah. I yeah. hope they're still the key unanswered questions. Maybe they've been answered. A couple of them are. In the last few days. No, I, I think that the biggest one we alluded to in our conversation um, about WikiLeaks, and there are a lot of redactions around the Trump campaign's communications with WikiLeaks. And given that was the forum for Redacted leaking. because of the Roger uh, Stone investigation, because of harm right? to an ongoing matter, which is yeah. the Roger Stone investigation. You know, if not others, but certainly, you know, he was indicted, and uh, what that indictment really revealed was that he was, in fact, at least in contact with WikiLeaks through an intermediary, and that he was reporting back to a high-ranking official in the Trump campaign, uh, and. So there's it goes back to what I thought was very important about Attorney General William Barr's press conference where he he kept focusing on the difference between disseminating and hacking um, because it, it would appear he's seen, of course, the full report. So in all likelihood, the Trump campaign was not involved in the hacking itself, but they were involved in the disseminating, at least with some degree of coordination uh, with WikiLeaks. Certainly, we've talked about the John Podesta emails coming an hour after the Access Hollywood tape, and that's pointed out in the report, but then everything else is redacted. So I think that's a big question. Um, and the other, there are other questions just about you know, some of the foreign policy aides like George Papadopoulos and Carter Page, who have been very central to this investigation. George Papadopoulos bragging about have, uh, be, the Russians having dirt on Hillary Clinton is what prompted the investigation into Russian interference in the election. Um, there are meetings that each of them took uh, with with certain pe- with certain Russian individuals that aren't really explained. Carter Page took a trip to Moscow and he was constantly emailing the campaign about it. Now, whether or not the campaign really took it seriously, is, we don't know. But they don't. They, the special counsel says they really just weren't able to understand the full details of that trip mm-hmm. where he was meeting with very 
you know, you know senior ranking Russian government officials and of course bo- you know really boasting about his role in the Trump campaign even if he was inflating it but trying to really set the stage for some sort of productive relationship between the two and they they really couldn't get to the bottom of what what exactly he did in Moscow so there are a few things that we just don't know and um, and I think one unanswered question is not within the report, but it's going to be for Robert Mueller and why, what everyone wants to. There's many reasons why everyone wants to hear from him. But one of the questions will be: Do you think Attorney General William Barr accurately described <laughs> your report? Do yeah, you think the, that yeah. his letter and his press conference was appropriate and accurately described the conclusions that your, well, you, your we, team? We know reached? that some of Mueller's associates have already said no. And mm-hmm. Pema, you you point out that the report did verify one thing that was talked about uh, earlier in terms of Florida, right? Yeah, there are a lot of, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of sort of little details in, in this report. And and also, I will say broadly, you know, we're focused a lot on the um, question of collusion or coordination in this report. We're focused on the obstruction of justice piece of this report. Uh, but this report is also about um, other attempts by the Russians to interfere in the elections, and that includes um, cyber attacks and hacking into state uh, election systems. And so one of the things I noticed was that, so if we rewind to last summer, uh, Bill Nelson, who was a senator at the time and running for re-election in Florida, uh, maybe he shouldn't have said this, but he let slip uh, that the Russians had hacked in, had successfully um, penetrated uh, state election systems in Florida. And basically he was raked over the coals for this assertion. Um, you know, he said, look, this is what I've been told. It's I can't give you more details. It's classified, but we need to be careful. And Republicans came out and said he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's making things up. The media was just very skeptical of, of him. And, and I was almost, you know, baffled by that, to be honest. I, I, I personally feel that there's probably a little bit of ageism going on here. There's a 75-year-old senator making an assertion that no one else could um, verify, Mm -hmm. and I think they decided that he just didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, Well, (laughs) here comes the Mueller report, and there is a line in there sort of tucked away um, about the hacking attempts, and there is one that's certainly focused on Florida, a key swing state, and there's a detail in there that says the FBI that believes that the Russians did... uh, gain access to at least one uh, local government local, in wow. in Florida. Yeah. Uh, and that was and the by fear the way, that when they were going to get into the voting machines, you know, and Right. And so this is um, several key states. Right. In into the, the states, you know, the uh, uh, government, which includes the election system. And uh, you know, that was in twenty sixteen, but but you know, once you gain access, you're in the system. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think there's, you know, strong reason to believe, you know, I've talked to, you know, experts on cybersecurity and voting and they basically say ahead of the mid said ahead of the midterms, you know, if they're going to do something in the midterms, they found their way in a long time ago. Right. So you don't sort of just peek in and then walk away. You're you're in. So bottom line, Bill Nelson was right. I think he was right. Yeah. Right. And overall, through the report, I mean, the the idea that the rush, one thing that's and, and I know. David Korn has written this for Mother Jones, that we lose sight of the forest for the trees sometimes, that this this report really, really establishes once and for all the massive attempts on the part of the Russians to interfere with the 2016 election. You just cannot deny it, right? It's real. Uh, including all this activity on Facebook, which took some, you've been writing about that too, some um, colorful 
forms by <laughs> Yes, no, I mean, it was a, a multi-pronged attack. Um, and, and I think we're just, you know, now sort of coming to grips with, with that. And, and I think, you know, looking ahead to 2020, it's so disconcerting that you have a, an administration that's been essentially trying to deny Russian deny. interference and, you know, deny it when you have the, uh, you know, the hacking, uh, you know, dissemination of, of emails. You have the, you know, potentially attempting to coordinate with a, a candidate here. You have the hacking into state election systems to potentially, like, fiddle with the results there. And then you have this whole uh, social media um, ad campaigning going on on Facebook. And I think that we're sort of slowly coming to understand that that stuff is actually uh, persuasive sometimes, you know, and, and they're, um, you know, putting out not just paid advertisements, but all sorts of posts pretending to be Americans, pretending to be Black Lives Matter um, uh, activists, yeah. all sorts of things to sort of inflame racial divisions, suppress the vote, uh, particularly of African-Americans and even right. Muslims. Yeah, they were pretty, uh, pretty sophisticated, right, in their targeting and in their messaging. They were very sophisticated in the targeting and in really pinpointing the hot button issues upon which they could sow divisions uh, within the American public. Uh, Pema just mentioned some of the groups and, you know, the with respect to the African-American voters, there was my, targeting specifically that stemmed from, you know, the comment Hillary Clinton had made in the 90s about super predators, uh, where she was, you know, not not the best snippet, but she was talking more broadly about, you know, violence in urban communities and gang activity and and mm -hmm. talking about, you know, the idea of teenagers being preyed upon, young kids being preyed upon. Um, but anyway, the point being that they, they saw exactly what could animate certain segments of the electorate. Uh, you know, it, they, obviously gun control was a big issue and immigration and fear mongering around migrants and refugees. And they really knew ex exactly what I think could at a minimum, just swing voters in one particular direction, but I think more importantly, suppress turnout around, among some of the key blocks of voters who potentially would have come out and voted for Democrats. Um, you know, I, it, it's it really does show you the extent to, as Pema pointed out, of the 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 interference campaign. But it also speaks to the effect of the propaganda that I think is often downplayed for no real good reason, where so much of the focus is on this idea of you know, the Russians not necessarily being able to really penetrate too many of the actual, you know, election systems at the state level, that they didn't actually in alter the results at the polls. Therefore, you know, was it oh, actually yeah. successful in, you know, but, it, you know in, in actually influencing the outcome of the election when if you change minds and if you use a disinformation campaign and fake, actual fake news in order to convince voters to vote one way or the other or to convince them to stay at home, how is that not effective in swaying the outcome of an election? Yeah, and I think <laughs> to bring this full circle here, because you mentioned some of these unanswered questions from the, the Mueller report, one of the biggest to me is why Paul Manafort was sharing polling data. Internal polling with data. <laughs> someone affiliated with Russian intelligence, with Konstantin yeah. Kalimnik. And, you know, there are a couple, I can, I can make some guesses, uh, so one guess would be uh, they're trying to prove that that they could win um, and therefore to sort of get help or can, mm -hmm. you know, potentially uh, get that Trump Tower Moscow built, something like that, something to sort of prove they're, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing well in the campaign. Or it could be to solicit help. It could be like, hey, 
check out these populations in, you know, Wisconsin. You know, there's a lot of black voters in Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Check out Michigan. Check out Pennsylvania. We don't know. And I think that one of the things um, that's so that's actually such a big contrast between the report and what Bill Barr said was Bill Barr said, you know, that that the Trump administration and this president have cooperated fully. And then you read the report and you go, no, they didn't. Because they couldn't get to the bottom of a lot of this stuff because people weren't cooperating. And of course, you know, Don Jr. didn't, um, wasn't forthcoming. We know that Manafort lied to them. We know that uh, Trump was not willing to sit down for an interview. We know that pardons were dangled over these people that were withholding information. So it's it's absolutely the opposite of full and total cooperation here. Uh, and there are these big questions that go right to the heart of, of, of not just collusion and coordination, but but what happened on Facebook in places, um, you know, to voters of color, to in terms of voter suppression, potentially in you know these key swing states that they brag about winning all the time. Right. Uh, I'm going to switch gears here. Enough on the Mueller report. Uh, tomorrow is the day we're told, although there's been no official announcement yet, that Joe Biden is going to jump into the 2020 presidential race. Supposedly. Yeah, but you know, I just I <laughs> can't. Who? First of all, it's been so long. I've been waiting for him to make a decision, and now we're told it's going to happen this week and Wednesday, and there's been so little advance. Yeah, what, what, what happened? What's going on over there? I don't know. That's what I'm asking you. So, <laughs> uh, reportedly, I think we've heard there's going to be a video released tomorrow morning, right. and then maybe he's going to Charlottesville, and then and I saw. Pittsburgh. And then didn't then they to maybe Pittsburgh. cancel Charlottesville? Right. First, there was there was some talk so. about I mean, a launch we, rally in Charlottesville, and then he would fly to Pittsburgh and do a rally there. But. And then I don't know where we are. The where fact that here stand. we are, we all cover this, and we don't know the day before what Joe Biden's going to do. It makes me wonder, is this, does he really have his act together? Well, yeah, there's the question of, do they just not want people to know exactly what their plans are? But at the same time, you think that for someone who's been in the business that this long, to put it, who who's the, probably right. the, has the most... Um, you know, the most ex- extensive profile of any of the candidates running, that there would be a more sophisticated rollout. <laughs> um, well, and maybe yeah. it still will be, and we'll all be maybe surprised. It will be, right. uh, but it's just, yeah, no one knows anything. And also one who is, <laughs> is uh, even though he's not a candidate, leading in all the polls, right? Uh, yeah, over I, Joe Biden. So I mean, when he, if he, let's say, let's assume he jumps in. The question is, what impact is it going to have? Is he like automatically then the front runner and everybody else sort of just fades? Or I don't think so. I don't necessarily think so. Um, I mean, he's already sort of like been this shadow front runner when you just from looking at the polls. Right. So I don't necessarily know that that would change from him Mm -hmm. making it official. Um, And, you know, probably could only go down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because then then we start scrutinizing his record. Then, you know, good things about him will come out and not so good things about him will come out. Um, That's just how it works. So so I, I think it's, you know, it's in some ways by making it real, you sort of make yourself vulnerable. Um, and and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and for someone who's been riding at the top of the polls, I think it can sort of come down. And I also I have to say, on some level, the whole like where are you going to announce? What's the rally? Blah blah blah. It kind of doesn't matter, and it's kind of superficial. Yeah. But you have to have a reason that you're running, right? This is like the famous thing. Like, why are you running for president? What is the argument for you? And you have to be able to take that guiding principle and infuse it into what you do. And if you just can't even decide where to announce your campaign, (laughs) then I have to wonder if you are sort of just 
doing what the operatives say or if you whether well, or not you actually have that a vision that vision and that reason because that should be informing everything that you do well it seems that the reason is maybe unspoken this is the third Obama term right that's what he's going to do he's going to continue the Obama presidency that's how a lot of people will look at it and I, and he's very unapologetic about the Obama administration and mm -hmm. what they achieved, where they fall short. Um, and that will be the narrative that Republicans even use against him. Um, he's certainly someone who's not exactly staking out a, uh, a place in the progressive wing of the party. And he has been one of those people who has really sort of carried the baton for a more centrist approach. Um, even if, more broadly speaking, the differences uh, in terms of policy for Democrats are still overall you know minimal not, not, yeah, not they're right, not right. you know it's, there's all some form of college affordability or you know it, it, some variation of single payer health care or government run health care i mean they're, they're you know i think you know raising the minimum wage and, and affordable you know education and child expanding child care it's all degrees of how to achieve those uh, broader solutions but i i really i do think that with joe biden the big question is going to be yes is he going to clear the field i don't think so um and, you know, I think Bernie Sanders is going to be his biggest competition at this. Now, they happen to top the polls for many reasons, one of which is also they're the two of the people with the most name recognition. Yeah. Um, but he really is going to have to stake out, as Pema said, a very clear role and a very have a very clear reason as to why he's actually running. And then let's not forget Seth Moulton, also, uh, <laughs> number 19. <laughs> That's about all you can say about him. There's nothing to 19. lose. You know, you got yeah, nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Sabrina Siddiqui, thank you. Pema Levy, thank you so much. All Thanks. right. Uh, and that's it for today, folks. Tuesday is all yours. Make the most of it. We'll be here tomorrow, and we'll be looking for this you. This is The Bill Press Show.